The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius, a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy, directors of The Martha Mitchell Effect. The Martha Mitchell Effect had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival and is screened at numerous other festivals, including Full Frame, Documentary Film Festival, and Hot Docs. It is now available for streaming on Netflix. Anne Alvergay is a documentary filmmaker and editor based in the greater New York area. Her editing credits include Love Gilda, Bully Coward Victim, the story of Roy Cohn, Being Elmo, and My Kid Could Paint That. Her short films have screened internationally at film festivals and galleries. Deborah McClutchy is a Brooklyn-based independent filmmaker. Her most recent credits include being co-producer of The Booksellers. For 11 years, she was a senior creative member at Oscilloscope Laboratories and previously was a producer for the Criterion Collection. I found this film to be fascinating. I've been a long-term Martha Mitchell fan, I guess you could call me. Certainly, I've had a great deal of interest in Martha Mitchell since I found out about her role in Watergate some 15, 20 years ago. As I say in the beginning of the interview, there's so much material here. It's a very rich subject. And I think Anne and Deborah did a wonderful job in condensing it while also showing how broad and deep this topic is in terms of Watergate, in terms of corruption and ethics, and the issue of speaking truth to power. The film does justice to Martha and her story, which at the time in the early 70s was distorted and twisted, certainly by politicians like Richard Nixon and her husband, John Mitchell, the former attorney general, as well as the media. Finally, with time and perspective, we can see just how valuable Martha Mitchell's perspective was, how keen were her insights into government, politics, and the corrupt souls of men, which tragically included her own husband. But in the end, Martha Mitchell was a patriot, and the Martha Mitchell effect does a marvelous job of showing us exactly why that was. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and do tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Anne Albergay and Deborah McClutchy, directors of The Martha Mitchell Effect. Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Anne, can you give us a brief logline of the film? Sure. The Martha Mitchell Effect is an archival documentary portrait of the unlikeliest of whistleblowers, Martha Mitchell, a Republican cabinet wife who was gaslit by the Nixon administration to keep her quiet. People realized Martha was telling the truth. She was called the Cassandra of Watergate. The film offers a female gaze on Watergate through the voice of Martha herself. 
The Martha Mitchell story is very rich. There's so much here to be mined. It's not just the events of Watergate, which are central, of course, and the rise and fall of Richard Nixon, but it's also an incredibly rich personal drama as well. And there's tons of great archival material. So why make this as a 40 minute short rather than a feature? And I ask that not as a criticism, but just to try to understand what goes into the filmmaker's decision-making process in trying to figure out whether this is a 40-minute film and not a feature. You know, it's interesting. We went back and forth trying to figure out if we had enough archival to actually tell a feature-length film or if it should be a short. And originally, I think we conceived of it as a short, then we realized we had so much. There was so much to tell of the story, not necessarily enough archival, but we definitely had enough to tell a larger story, but we might be veering away from the all archival approach. We would probably have to do a lot of camera interviews. So we sort of circled back to it again to doing a short. And also, you know, at the time when we were conceiving of the film, I mean, this was 2019, Martha Mitchell was not a well-known figure. So we were a little worried about having her carry an entire film, even though her story is amazing, because we weren't sure how much people would be attracted to her. You know, it's a story from 50 years ago, and we just really did not have the amount of archival we needed to tell the story in a longer format. So when Netflix came on board, they were great. They said, you can have it as short as you want, or as long as you want, but it can't be more than 40 minutes. And so it was sort of a good framework to work with that, and then we made it basically a 40-minute film. And 40 minutes is the limit because beyond that, it's not considered a short. Is that right? I assume it's the Academy that dictates that because you can't qualify as a short unless it's 40 minutes or under. I think it's a very satisfying length, although it does leave you wanting to learn more about Martha Mitchell, which I think is one of the strengths of the film. You know, I first learned about Martha Mitchell rather randomly about 15 years or even more ago. I was staying at some bed and breakfast somewhere and somebody had left behind a hardcover copy of Winzola McClendon's 1979 biography, Martha, The Life of Martha Mitchell. And I was fascinated fascinated by her story, really enthralled with this book, and also a bit shocked to realize how famous she'd been at the time in the early 70s during the time of Watergate, and that I'd never heard of her. And I know I'm not alone in this. Leon Nafok's great podcast about Watergate's slow burn begins with an episode called Martha, and he too wonders aloud why he hadn't heard her story before in spite of her fame at the time. So can you tell us how and when you both learned about Martha and why you wanted to make a documentary about her? This is Deborah. So Anne and I first learned about Martha through a podcast, actually, and we didn't know about her previous to that. Perhaps Anne had an inkling about her, but I definitely wasn't aware of Martha Mitchell as a character from the Watergate era. And I think that is likely because the predominant narrative of Watergate is through the lens of all the president's men. So it's always been the dominant story, the dominant film, the dominant tale of this time period. And Martha Mitchell just was not a character whose story had been told. So when we first heard about her, we got very excited and thought, you know, how was it that she hasn't become more of a name associated with Watergate. And she was a woman that was lost to history, like so many women were. So our curiosity was totally piqued. We did a deep dive to see if there had been a documentary about her, and there hadn't been. So we thought, okay, we're going to do it. We really wanted to insert Martha back into her rightful place, into this Watergate story, into American history. Anything else for you, Anne, about why you wanted to tell Martha's story? 
I think both Deborah and I were pretty devastated by the 2016 election. <laughs> we're looking to collaborate and tell sort of a female-driven story. And when we heard about Martha's story, God, like how how is it possible that there's this hidden figure in Watergate who was clearly very influential in, in the scandal and was very tied into the inner circle? What we realized is the gaslighting campaign worked against her. And then the more we delved into that, the more we realized this was a very rich story. And it was a story that was somewhat untold. I mean, certainly there had been rumors about her kidnapping, but they were pretty much disregarded and disbelieved. And so we thought, you know, let's dig into this. And when we did more research into the White House tapes, we realized, oh, yeah, not only did Nixon and Haldeman talk about her incessantly, but they really outlined exactly what they did to her. And so... We knew we had a story to tell from both sides. Just to fill in any gaps for people who may not have seen the film yet, very briefly, who was Martha Mitchell and what made her so famous at the time? Martha Mitchell was the wife of John Mitchell. John Mitchell was the attorney general of Nixon's first administration and arguably the second most powerful man, a very close confidant of Nixon, a special advisor to him. And Martha Mitchell was a cabinet wife who really colored outside the lines is how we like to describe her. She was very vivacious. She developed a very savvy relationship with the press. She liked to be in the limelight. She had opinions about things and she was out outspoken, famously outspoken. She supported the platform of the Nixon administration, for sure, but she had her own opinions on things as well. She wasn't afraid to share them. After Nixon ran again, John Mitchell became Nixon's campaign manager, and she worked with the committee to reelect the president. And so she really had a role in his reelection. As you had mentioned earlier, she was a celebrity. I mean, how many people know a cabinet wife's name today? And she had name recognition. There was a Gallup poll taken back then. Around 79% of people knew who she was at the time, which I don't know if you can name the wife of the attorney general right now. So the fact that she was a celebrity in that era was pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I think one of the things that made her a great character was that she was from the South, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and one of her nicknames, not terribly complimentary, was the Mouth of the South. But her Southerness is a big part of who she was and how she came across. Can you talk about the ways in which her Southern background is key to understanding Martha and the Martha Mitchell phenomenon? Martha was a Southern belle in many ways, and her personality was very flirtatious in that sense. She loved the limelight. She loved being a little flamboyant. And she was very gregarious in a way that I think was part of her Southern belle personality and charm. That's how she kind of courted the press and the press were attracted to her because of that in some ways as well. She was a larger than life personality. And so I think that's how that related to her becoming such a popular figure. I would also add that I think she was an outlier in DC society and she was blonde. She had this crazy bouffant. Her fashion was considered dated at the time because she would wear kitten heels and she was from the South. She had a very strong accent. She liked to flirt with men. That's a kind of a Southern trait. And so I think that she was easily dismissible as a result of that. I think that that's what did play into the eventual Martha Mitchell effect which was termed in the 80s by a Harvard psychologist, which essentially is when a medical professional labels a patient delusional when in fact they're telling the truth. So I think it was easy because she was a woman, because she was a blonde woman, because she was a traditional woman who was from the South, who would embody conventional female traits. It was easier to discredit her, unfortunately. 
Let's go to the incident in Newport Beach. What happened to Martha Mitchell in the days following the Watergate break-in on the night of June 17th, 1972? After the break-in, Martha was in Newport Beach. She was there for a a number of uh, campaign appearances with her husband. Shortly after the break-in, her husband and Magruder flew back to D.C. and they didn't inform her as to why they were abruptly ending their trip. So from what we know, Martha became very curious and she tried to seek out the press. She was with a bodyguard who didn't let her see the press, but eventually she saw a newspaper and she noticed James McCord's mugshot on the cover. And James McCord was not only one of the five burglars of the break-in, but he was also her former bodyguard and her daughter's chauffeur to school. She knew him as an employee of Creek, the committee to re-elect the president, of which her husband was ahead. So she knew that there was some connection. She knew that her husband was involved in some ways, and she got scared. And she called her husband, and he tried to pacify her. And when she didn't get what she wanted from him, she called her good old friend, journalist Helen Thomas. And while she was on the phone with her, the bodyguard, as the story goes, pulled the telephone cord out of the wall and contained her in her room and didn't let her speak or leave. And eventually there was a doctor that was called because she cut her hand and she was theoretically hysterical. He tranquilized her against her will. So these events are very involved and they're very frightening and they were pretty controversial at the time. You as filmmakers are coming to this 50 years later and you have to figure out A, what happened as best we can tell and B, how do we portray these events on film? So how did you figure out, okay, here's what we think happened and how did you come up with your creative approach to portray these events? I would say it wasn't until recently that people actually believed this story. Even though James McCord had corroborated this in 1975 in a New York Times interview. I think our key witness to this and also interview subject was John Dean. He was able to corroborate the story because he was in the Watergate apartment of John Mitchell at the time when Martha called. So he heard that there was some commotion. And so we at least had that corroboration. We believed Martha. And we have the doctor in the film saying that, you know, he had given Martha the shot. Martha had recounted this tale to Helen Thomas. She recounted it to Marsha Kramer, a journalist in New York City. So she had been telling the story that she was detained against her will. Was she, you know, legally kidnapped? I'm not sure what the legal definition of that would be. But if you're retained against your will in such a terrifying way, we believed her story. It begs the question, you know, why didn't the press seemingly investigate this more thoroughly in those days following her account. I mean, it's a pretty shocking story. I think the mainstream press did not believe her story. They believed Nixon's version that she wasn't a person of authority who could be believed because A, she didn't know anything, and B, she was a drunk woman who exaggerated the truth. In the film, we do hear one of the White House tapes in which Nixon and his top aide, Bob Haldeman, basically hatched this plan to have John Mitchell resign and say that the reason is going to be to spend more time with Martha and because of his concerns for her health. Then later in the film, we hear another tape in which Mitchell is meeting with Haldeman and Nixon, and he basically agrees to this plan. So what's amazing in the film is to have a clip of Martha Mitchell later talking about what it was like for her to listen to the Nixon White House tapes and specifically this tape of her husband plotting against her. 
Can you talk about how remarkable that is and how the tapes themselves drove so much about the Watergate story? You know, it's interesting. Haldeman was very conniving, I will say that. He really spun this tale. I mean, he comes from a marketing background, right? Madison Avenue, so it's no surprise. But he knew the media and he was able to spin this tale that he could use Martha's cry for her husband to get out of office because of the dirty tricks as cover. And so Martha really did think that she had succeeded. She really thought, oh, wow, like he did reside for me. And that sort of set the course of how she defended him in public. Obviously, she was speaking out and pointing the finger at Nixon because she really did believe Nixon was behind it. But she was also trying to defend her husband and defend herself in some ways. You know, she knew if her husband went down, she would also go down. So when she realizes after hearing the White House tapes after they became public that it wasn't really about her, that it was about Nixon, that he really betrayed her and chose Nixon, that it felt like an ultimate betrayal for her. And it sort of gets at what our larger story is, this sort of love triangle, I think, between Nixon and Martha and John, you know, both Nixon and Martha sort of vied for John's attention. And ultimately, John chose Nixon over his wife. Yeah. And I would add to that also, it really illustrates the personal cost of this whole thing for Martha, too. I mean, this is a political story of political intrigue and political corruption and that type of thing. But we really wanted to humanize this story and just see how this betrayal was so brutal. And it goes even further than that. John Mitchell, towards the end of the film, says, you know, it could have been worse when he was sentenced. He could have been sentenced to live with Martha Mitchell. So I think no matter who you are watching this story, like you can't help but feel for Martha at this point. Like the betrayal was really brutal and she got hurt very badly. She spoke truth to power and didn't have to do that, but she did and she paid the ultimate cost. Much was made of Martha's drinking and the fact that she was or may have been an alcoholic. It certainly was used as a tool to obscure and discredit and distract from what she was saying was used to gaslight her. Does it matter if Martha Mitchell was an alcoholic? I mean, it would have mattered to her and her family, but in the broader scheme of things, where do we put that information, I guess, is my question. I think alcoholism is often used to discredit people, especially those who are asserting some sort of power or speaking truth to power. It was certainly used to discredit Martha, and I don't feel as though it was right to use it to discredit her. She may have been an alcoholic, but that doesn't take away from what she was saying. That doesn't take away from the fact that she was right in pointing the finger at Nixon and that she was right to be horrified by the dirty tricks that were happening. The culture of alcohol back then was much different. You know, the three martini lunch was much more prevalent. And so everyone was drinking back in that time. And that's not to excuse it by any means. But it's also just to say that if she would be discredited, then you would have to discredit President Nixon, who, as some reporters had reported, had often been drunk in the White House and in the Oval Office. Yeah, I would just add, well, I think her alcohol intake influenced her behavior. It didn't matter in the end. She told the truth. And she was right. Once it became clear that what she'd been saying all along about the planning of dirty tricks going all the way to the top was proven true, Martha again became a very popular media figure. She appeared on various talk shows and even co-hosted. At this point, the film takes on a lighter, fun tone. 
What do you make of this third act for Martha? Do you think she was genuinely happy being back in the limelight at this point? I think that she was absolutely happy to be back in the limelight. She, at the time, even floated the idea of starting a new career as a TV talk show host. She was essentially co-hosting for like a week at a time at these various shows. So I think she was happy. I think she was happy to see some level of vindication. At the same time, she was going through a pretty dramatic separation from her husband, and he was stalling on alimony payments. She was living in, I wouldn't say poverty, but it was hard to get by. And she was also distanced from her daughter. So I think personally, she was sad and upset. And from what we gather, also drinking and taking pills as well to compensate. But I think publicly, she loved being the limelight. So at least she had that vindication. I wanted to get back to your creative approach for the film. You did conduct some original interviews for the film, but we don't have any talking head interviews. It's all the audio that's used with the archival. How did you settle on this creative approach? And let's start with you. Originally, we always knew we wanted to try to make an all archival film. We wanted to immerse the viewer in the world of Martha in this very particular early 70s DC. And we knew that we could certainly at least tell or illustrate Nixon's side of the story through leaning on the Haldeman and Ehrlichman Super 8 collection, which is essentially hours of home movies that were shot in and around the White House. And it's mostly observational. Martha's side was a bit more challenging to illustrate as she predominantly is seen in certain small news clips or in lengthy TV interviews. Because Martha is such a dynamic character, there was so much that could be seen just from watching her, even in a sort of state TV interview that we knew we had something. We also wanted to make it as experiential as we could for the viewer. I mean, not only in immersing you in this world, but also, and I'm not sure if we succeeded, but trying to make you understand how it was for Martha. What was the effect of the gaslighting? How that sort of made her doubt herself. And as the film goes on, feeling what that was like to have the mainstream press and then also to have Nixon and then ultimately her husband discredit her publicly. And I'll just add to that in terms of the contemporary interviews, as Anne mentioned, we knew that we wanted this to be archival based, but we wanted some voices to come in from the contemporary era that could help us contextualize Martha's story and give impressions of their personal interactions with Martha. We knew we wanted primary subjects, people that knew her, who interfaced with her, who interviewed her at some point along the way. And so those were our primary go-to audio interviews. We made a bulk of this film during the pandemic, and so audio interviews actually served us quite well in terms of our stylistic and aesthetic approach because we conducted all of those over Zoom. We didn't have to be in the same room with anyone during the pandemic, so it actually worked to our benefit to have them be audio only. But it was a stylistic choice from the get-go to do audio only interviews and really focus and highlight the archival as much as possible. Was there one single moment going through the archival material that was just a total aha moment? I would say it was hearing Nixon and the David Frost throw Martha under the bus for Watergate. We knew when we heard that that was a linchpin for a film and certainly for a tease because we put it in the tease. But also the White House tapes after the break-in between Nixon and Haldeman. 
since you mentioned it, that clip from Nixon in the Frost interviews is worth highlighting because it got me to go back and look at the transcripts of that interview. And if what I read is to believe, it wasn't even in response to a question from David Frost. It's something that Nixon himself took it upon himself to just bring up. At the end, the interview was basically over. And he brought it up and he goes on and on and on. And it's remarkable that he uses this opportunity to spout these lies about Martha Mitchell. The conclusion I came to was he himself had been reviewing the White House tapes in preparation for these interviews with David Frost. And he probably was listening to himself on those tapes with Haldeman and Mitchell talking about Martha. And he landed on some way in his mind, ah, here's how I can spin this in my interview with Frost to once again pin it on Martha Mitchell. And it's based on a lie. The lie is that if it hadn't been for Martha Mitchell, there wouldn't have been any Watergate. The lie is the word Watergate. He wants us to think Watergate means the Watergate breaking. But what he refers to in the tapes contemporaneously when he says Watergate is the cover-up. If it hadn't been for Martha, the cover-up would have succeeded. That's what he's saying in the tapes. But then here he is in the Frost interviews trying to not just lie to us, but confuse us and using Martha as a tool. So glad that you used that clip because I think it shows, you know, Martha is not just a side note to history. She's central to it. And Nixon himself proves that. Yeah, I mean, that's such an astute observation. Even John Dean has come around to that. And we interviewed him. He was like, yeah, when I, after my seventh book or whatever it was, he also dug into the tapes and realized how central Martha was to sort of the, the whole ecosystem, I would say, of the Watergate scandal. And yeah, it also illustrates how much of a vendetta Nixon had for Martha. I mean, it was it was a very complicated relationship where he was in awe of her, jealous of her, and then fearful of her, and then upset at her and hated her in the end. And what's even more awful about that Nixon bite is that he said it after Martha had died also. You know, she couldn't defend herself at all. So he threw her under the bus again at a moment when she had no recourse at all. So it makes it even more sad and kind of diabolical on his part to have done that. But that was the Nixon way. So this is probably my last question. And we'll start with a quote from Martha. She's asked, is the country going to right itself now? Do we have Watergate behind us? And she answers, we'll never have Watergate behind us, I hope, because in a way it's been good. We're teaching the politicians to be straight and not crooked. Well, last month marked the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in and the kidnapping of Martha Mitchell. And here we are with the January 6th hearings and the reckoning with Donald Trump's actions as president. One has to wonder whether the politicians have learned anything about being straight and not crooked and whether we as a people have learned anything either. So my question is, how in these different times can we still manage to find lessons in what Martha Mitchell said and stood for and apply those lessons in some meaningful way? That's a really hard question to answer because we're in such dire circumstances right now. And I think right now our culture is very fractured. People have characterized the Watergate scandal as being child's play in comparison to January 6th and the threat to our democracy right now. 
And I don't think that's true. I think the threat to democracy was very real during the Watergate scandal and very terrifying for a lot of people that lived through it. So we're now facing another existential crisis and existential threat to our democracy that's even more alarming in many ways. But I hope that we're going to learn from this. And I, I have to exercise hope in that the January 6th commission is doing its job properly. And those hearings are incredibly riveting and so damning. So I'm hoping that it's writing the course that we're currently on. I would just add to that. I think this country is so divided politically that Americans are now thirsty for outliers, individuals who are brave enough to cross party lines and speak truth to power. And, you know, Martha was one civilian who stood up against the presidential dirty tricks against this higher authority to call out public corruption. And I think we are seeing that in January 6th. I mean, we're starting to. We saw it with Shea and Ruby Friedman. We definitely saw it with Cassidy Hutchinson. I mean, this was just one very young woman who no one would think about. It was just sort of an underling, but she knew a lot of things and she was brave enough to speak to it. And everything she said so far has been corroborated. So I do have hope. And I think that Martha's legacy is a beacon to that as to maybe the truth won't come out right away, but it will ultimately come out. In closing, I would just compliment you both on not only making this story, which was kind of lost to history, giving it its rightful place at the center of these events, but taking what is a really tragic story, Martha's personal story. And I think not only validating who she was and what she stood for and what she said, but redeeming her and making it a positive story. Her life had meaning and she is a hero. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you both and great talking to you. Do you each have a recommendation for a documentary short that people should see? And Deborah will go to you first. It's hard to narrow it down just to one. One that I do really love is an animated documentary. It's called More Than I Remember, and it chronicles the journey of a young girl from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it tells her story through an animated tale. And it's really beautifully done. It's kind of unconventional being an animated documentary, but it has stuck with me. And how about you, Anne? One of my favorite short films that I saw at Sundance was actually a personal documentary about the director's parents and a similar car crash that they all got into when the director was young. It's called Dear Woods Death Trap. By the description, it sounds rather morbid, but it is actually a very hilarious tale illustrated beautifully by Super 8 recreations and present-day interviews with his parents who are hilarious and rather recalcitrant subjects. Thank you.